coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Thursday to you. Those of you who listened yesterday and wondered, is he going to get through the whole show without quitting? Uh, I managed to get through the entire show. I had a colonoscopy this morning, so I had to do the prep treatment. And uh, need I say more? Uh, nonetheless, I also thought might not do a show today because they tell you that the, uh, by the way, powered by propofol. <laughs> when they told me this morning, we're going to put some propofol in you and that'll put you to sleep. I thought to myself, wait a minute, ain't that the that killed Michael Jackson? And indeed it was. He overdosed and administered this, I believe, at home with uh, not much medical supervision. Nonetheless, I had the best little half an hour nap today while they did what they did and I got a clean bill of health. Incidentally, I have the photos to prove that if anybody, Ron at ronshowatl.com or you want to, no, I'm not going to post them on social media. Oh, no, no, absolutely clean bill of health and what a breath of fresh air that was. I do, however, somehow, again, feel a little guilty because as I was putting myself to bed last night, getting ready for my antics this morning, I saw the same news everybody else did. Uh, reading from the Associated Press, a man shot and killed at least 16 people. We know now that he has killed at least 18 and injured more. At a restaurant in a bowling alley in Lewiston, Maine. Lewiston, Maine, a rural state. Folks love their guns. Hunting-friendly kind of state. Um, back to the article. And then fled into the night, sparking a massive search by hundreds of officers while frightened residents in multiple communities stayed locked in their homes Thursday under a shelter-in-place advisory. And we'll talk more about uh, the uh, person who is identified as the person of interest, the shooter, Robert Card, age 40, with his military training, his mental health issues, this, that, and the other. It is, however, the 36th, at least as I record today's show, mass killing in the United States, according to a database maintained by the Associated Press in USA Today in partnership with Northeastern University. By the way, Maine has no red flag law to identify those in extreme risk to gun violence. So the question we ask is, how can we know when a person's mental health struggle has made them a danger to the community? And if so, because of patient confidentiality, HIPAA, how do health professionals even handle a scenario like this? Joining me to discuss this is brain health coach and consultant, Lee Richardson. She is a licensed professional counselor, founder of the Brain Performance Center in Dallas, also author of the book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, the How, What, Why to Peak Performance. Lee, thanks for joining me. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. So like many, I'm sure you were stunned, dismayed when we saw yet another mass shooting come across the crawl on uh, cable news last night. Absolutely. Heartbroken. So uh, the first the question I wanted to ask you, and I know this probably may not be a question you get very often. Have you ever had to deal with counseling uh, some sort of a mass event like this, some sort of a mass grief or, or a mass trauma scenario before? I've had had to counsel people that were part of a mass event mm -hmm. after the fact. And I'm amazed. It may be a couple come to mind. And it was actually two years after that it happened that they that they realized they have got to get help. They've got to get help. And it just it lived on 
it, I'll never forget being told it's just as vivid in my head today as it was the day that it happened. Mm. That was the next question I was going to ask you. Is the brain capable of healing itself from something like this, or are there defense mechanisms that can sometimes bury the effects? That's probably a two-part answer. Well, it, the brain can heal, but the brain has to process. Right. And the way the brain, the brain processes information is it turns it into a story. Now, here's the bad part. Mm. The information doesn't have to be accurate. Whatever's available, the brain will just snatch it and stick it right in there. And then you get a story that's inaccurate and that's playing over and over in your head. You get so caught up with, with asking, is that really what happened? It, did I really see that? that you can't process right and in order for the brain to heal you've got to process and whether that's always talk therapy certainly can help as calming the brain down with creating neuroplasticity and neurofeedback all can help but in order for the brain the brain's going to store that trauma Mm. in the subconscious level and, it, you know, it, it'll work its way up to the conscious level. Oh, I don't want to think about that right now. Mm. And we'll pop it right back down. But it'll be back. And the only way it can be released is to, to release it at that subconscious level. And I have to imagine, just thinking, I've watched a lot of cop dramas, uh, <laughs> just thinking from a, a strictly uh, judicial standpoint, that might be why it's important to get eyewitness testimony as soon as possible. You speak about how the brain can sort of transform what somebody experiences into a different scenario later down the road. Absolutely. And and even myself sitting at my computer reading, I read a story, well, a local said, we knew to stay away from this this person. Wow. And then I, then I read another story that he was in the military, the army. Mm-hmm. He had received a humanitarian uh, Award mm-hmm. and different, you know, awards for his achievements. So it's so confusing. Mm-hmm. And he'd been, we know that he'd been in a mental health facility mm-hmm. in the summer. So the sad thing is, is that we definitely knew that there was an issue. So that brings me to the part where I think I and a lot of America, if not most of America, might be exasperated because we we know we know where we stand when it comes to uh, gun rights advocacy. Uh, versus gun control. Uh, we we also know that assault weapons bans work, but that's another story for another uh, segment. But the question I have is, what do people do? What can healthcare professionals even do when you have firewalls from uh, you know patient confidentiality to law enforcement knowledge? What what do we do when you are just a common citizen even? Who knows that somebody ain't right in the head? I, I, I'm using that uh, hyperbole just a little bit. But what do we do when we know somebody who we also know happens to have the means to do what this man did? How? What do we do? Well, we don't know what to do. And the first thing that comes to mind is, well, you go to the police. You go, you know, you you go to the law enforcement agencies. But when you get there. And it's just your opinion Mm -hmm. and and you're sharing from the heart Mm -hmm. and it sounds like that. They don't know what to do with that information. There's got to be there's got to be some kind of gateway between the hospital that has access to that information. And when they when he was released, did we did any was anybody informed? Mm -hmm. I doubt it. Right. 
And I mean, to me, this is a perfect case study to take and say, how can we bridge the gap? There is a huge communication gap. Well, and this brings me to another topic. We, I spoke with uh, Dom Kelly, who is an advocate for the disabled, whether it be physically or, or mentally or psychologically disabled. And we know that uh, anywhere from half to two thirds of those in our jails and prison are dealing with, uh, you know, a mental uh, or, or physical disability of some sort. And there again, we just don't have that gap. We're instead of treating people, we're just imprisoning people and thinking that that alone is going to make our society safer. Uh, again, the, the missing cog here is the, the mental wellness that folks so desperately need in this country and the stigma that comes with it, of course. Well, and I think that we're reaching limits that we have got to address it. We have, I mean, I think 20 years ago, we thought, the, you know, medication, that'll, that'll be the answer. It'll sedate them. It'll, mm. And we've learned that medication doesn't work for everybody. Mm-hmm. And there's side effects. And when you add more medication on top of that, you get more side effects sometimes. Mm-hmm. Not an expert in the medication world, but I do know that it does not work for everybody. We are with counselor and brain coach by the name of Lee Richardson. She is a licensed professional counselor, founder of the Brain Performance Center, and also author of the book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, the How, What, Why to Peak Performance. Have you ever had to counsel those who have dealt in uh, wartime scenarios or police officers even who have dealt with such trauma like this? I have worked with a lot of veterans, and it's... It lives on in their heart. Mm. And it's the, I honestly believe that if they had more resources Mm. and they had more recognition, we need to just all have a big sit down and say, we've got a big problem. Mm. And we've got to deal with it. And I know the VA, I've I've had people, I have veterans call my office and I'll, I'll say something about the VA and, oh, I know. Because they're so overwhelmed, mm. they they are so they get so frustrated when they try to knock on that door because nobody answers. And and now here in the state of Georgia, for example, our, our lieutenant governor, who is going to run for governor in twenty twenty six, has proposed giving teachers a ten thousand dollars stipend if they choose to carry a weapon on a school campus. Uh, your thoughts on that? Just initial reaction to to that concept. My initial reaction to that is if you're going to carry a weapon, you better be prepared to use it. That is why I would not carry a weapon. So you're a licensed professional. You're a counselor. If if you were counseling someone uh, such as Robert Card and you felt compelled, to, are, are there any things that even you could do in your capacity? I could listen. I, I'm still so in shock, to be honest with you, Ron, I'm still so shocked about what happened that my first response is I could listen to him. Perhaps I could help him process Mm -hmm. what's going on in, on his head. But my gut tells me it didn't start. It's been going on in his head for Mm -hmm. a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you break into that? How do you, how do you get that? him to open up because obviously he heard voices in his head that was reported. Mm -hmm. He talked about blowing up a military facility. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, those are cries out for help. That's saying, I need help. I need help. And I mean, when I said I could listen, if, if we could just listen Mm -hmm. and intervene. 
But it'd to be a place but, to it'd be a place to start. But to be clear, from a mental health standpoint, beyond that, there's nothing you could do in a state with no red flag laws to alert law enforcement. Correct. Correct. Not that I know of. I mean, it's and each state is so their laws vary mm-hmm. so differently. And oh my gosh, we've got to protect our rights. Yeah, that's. But we also saw red flag laws didn't help the folks in uh, Colorado Springs. Uh, I believe it was last year at the LGBTQ bar. Anyway, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Lee Richardson, thank you so much for joining us. Licensed professional counselor, founder of the Brain Performance Center in Dallas, also author of the book, Turn Your Brain On to Get Your Game On, The How, What, Why to Peak Performance. Thanks for joining the Ron Show today for a discussion. Thanks for having me. By the way, when it comes to faculty members at school carrying weapons, one local administrator said, we've got to make sure that the people who are carrying firearms are not only physically equipped to keep schools safe, but they're psychologically prepared for the job. I'll tell you who that administrator was and further that discussion when the Rancho returns after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Thursday. So on the heels of are electing a new House Speaker, and then later that night, having a mass shooting in a very gun-friendly, rural uh, swing state. I think, yeah, it means a swing state. They've had independent uh, constitutional officers and have gone left and right, blue and red, when it comes to their uh, congressional representation. Yeah, it means, means like a miniature version of Georgia when it I guess in the way Georgia is right now, anyway. Um, I thought I would point out something that our current House Speaker said uh, back in 2015 in an interview. Many women use abortion as a form of birth control, you know, in certain segments of society. And it's just shocking and sad. But this is where we are when you break up the nuclear family, when you tell a generation of people that life has no value, no meaning, that it's expendable then you do wind up with school shooters. Here's the thing. The alleged gunman, Robert Card, was, by social media accounts anyway, very much a right-winger. Reading from a Newsweek article that I, by the way, shared on the Ron Show Facebook page, at Ron Show ETL, Card's Facebook and X, formerly Twitter, accounts have now been deactivated. It is unclear if Card was responsible or if they were suspended by X and Meta. According to screen grabs and videos from what is allegedly Card's Facebook page, he finished a 20-year career in the Army earlier this year. Newsweek is unable to verify this information at this time. A video of Card's X Twitter account using the username at Robert C. 2004-1800 shows he was interested in right-wing figures. He liked tweets, I'm sorry, his liked tweets include content published by Donald Trump Jr., Tucker Carlson, and Dinesh D'Souza. He also liked tweets by former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan, according to the screenshots. Card liked the tweet from the former president's son regarding trans and non-binary, air quotes, mass shooters, from March this year, which reads, Given the incredible rise of trans and non-binary mass shooters in the last few years, how many? How how many? One? Was it one in Nashville? By far the largest group committing as a percentage of population. (laughs) I mean, I guess if you ignore white male heterosexuals, sure. Um, 
maybe rather than talking about guns, we should be talking about lunatics pushing their gender-affirming bullshit on our kids. Another tweet that Card liked from Tucker Carlson regarding the same subject reads, The trans movement, it turns out, is the mirror image of Christianity and therefore its natural enemy. People who believe they're God can't stand to be reminded that they're not. He also liked the post from Dinesh D'Souza about banning assault weapons, which reads, Ban assault weapons? Well, cars kill more people than guns do. But cars can't put more guns do. But we blame the drivers. We don't ban large or fast cars. Actually, we do have regulations on oversized vehicles. And Anyway, we understand that cars, like guns, don't act by themselves. The blame lies with the people who operate these mechanical devices. Common Sense 101. I mentioned yesterday that Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones has floated the idea and wants to present this to the legislature next session to give teachers a $10,000 stipend for being firearms trained and carrying a weapon on school campuses. Uh, Gwinnett's superintendent ain't thrilled about that. His special assistant, Jorge Gomez, telling the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, we've got to make sure that the people who are carrying firearms are not only physically equipped to keep schools safe, but they're psychologically prepared for the job. If you provide a $10,000 incentive, there may be a lot of people that might want to sign up for just the $10,000 incentive. My concern should be, will this incentive ensure the proper both psychologically and physical training of those individuals to make sure that that doesn't create a worse nightmare than what we're trying to solve? His boss, by the way, Gwinnett County Superintendent, the largest school district in the state, by the way, Calvin Watts, uh, said during a meeting with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporters and editors, I can't imagine giving a green light to someone to carry a firearm in a school. Training and all of that aside, it just gives me pause. And at the same time, I hope that those who are making these decisions also think very deeply and broadly about the implications. Sure, Superintendent Watts, but are you thinking about the electoral implications for a man running for the GOP primary nomination to be governor of the state of Georgia? Okay, now in his defense, Lieutenant Governor Jones did offer this in response to the spate of mass school shootings. It's sad, but it's the sign of the times that we have to go to these lengths to protect our children. But it's just where we are, he said. Again, I I need to remind you that the incident last night in Maine, where at least a dozen and a half, 18 people have been killed, more than a dozen more injured, happened in a gun-friendly constitutional carry, no license needed state in a bowling alley. Can you think of a more blue-collar, testosterone-laden facility in a town or city of any size? A bowling alley. Okay, Midtown Bowl in Atlanta doesn't count. I'm just saying it's a little gay. But I love it. I love that place. Also, and I don't know how this happens, but Of all the gay sports leagues that I've either participated in or worked in conjunction with, the gay bowlers get the handsomest dudes. What's up with that? Anyway, (laughs) total aside. I'm just saying this this canard, this ruse, this right-wing trope about the good guy with a gun. We don't have enough good guys with guns out there. Maine gave carte blanche to any good guy or gal with a gun at the local watering hole slash restaurant slash bowling alley to save lives 
and no one partook in it. So I guess the solution is going to be for the NRA now to pivot to citizens in states like even Maine, where they thought, well, there aren't gangbangers here. We don't have any any of those uh, urban centers with all that gang activity and high levels of crime. We're perfectly safe here. I, I guess now the pivot is to start pushing people to strap on, to carry, to have it on them just in case, right? Because more guns in a mass setting with lots of people fleeing and running and no one aware what's going on is the answer? Well, listen, at the end of the day, we can sit here and run to our flanks, and we will, because this is what we always do after a mass shooting. But the cold reality is nothing is going to change at the federal and, of course, not the state level, at least for another 12 months, because... The House is controlled by one party. Legislation ain't going to go through both the House and the Senate and land on the president's desk that's going to change one thing about our gun policy. Back after this, The Ron Show on America One Radio or wherever you podcast. Follow The Ron Show on Facebook at The Ron Show Radio. The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, not all doom and gloom today. There is some... It's really hard to pivot from... A mass shooting where people died to then say good news. I caught myself. Sorry. Here locally, we do have some promising developments anyway when it comes to fair elections, fair maps even, and putting voters back in power in electing their representation instead of having the representation draw the maps to select their voters. The Georgia Recorder reporting, Jill Nolan on the scene here, where a federal judge has struck down Georgia's political maps, putting it back in the hands of lawmakers, where a judge has ordered the state to draw an additional majority black congressional district. And that's not all. District Court Judge, reading from the Georgia Recorder, I'll have this in today's show notes at ronchoatl.com. District Court Judge Steve C. Jones issued his ruling Thursday after holding a nearly two-week trial last month. Jones concluded that the GOP-drawn maps violate Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bars practices or procedures that discriminate on the basis of race. That provision of the 1965 law, the one the GOP would sure love to get rid of, recently survived a test before the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, Jones ruled that the black voters and religious and civil rights groups that filed the lawsuits carried the burden of demonstrating a lack of equal openness in Georgia's election system as a result of the challenged redistricting plans. Now, let me just tell you, this ruling is devastating for GOP majority rule, not just in the House in Washington, but perhaps even at the General Assembly level. Let me continue reading here. The outcome will likely affect the balance of power on the national level, where Republicans hold a fragile majority in the U.S. House. We know this. And shrink the already tightening margin under the gold dome. That's right. The General Assembly now can be in play. Let me read to you where all this starts affecting those margins. The ruling applies to five congressional districts, including the closely watched 6th District in the northern Atlanta suburbs, as well as 10 state Senate and 11 state House districts. Jones has ordered the state to draw additional majority black districts in Metro Atlanta and near Macon. He said, The remedy involves an additional majority black congressional district in West Metro Atlanta, 
two additional majority black Senate districts in South Metro Atlanta, two additional majority black House districts in South Metro Atlanta, one additional majority black House district in West Metro Atlanta, and two additional majority black House districts in and around Macon Bibb, he wrote. The article continues, the 6th district, previously represented by U.S. Representative Lucy McBath, was drawn to favor a conservative candidate in 2021 and is now represented by Congressman Rich McCormick. Under the new map, Republicans now hold nine of Georgia's 14 congressional seats, up from eight under the old map. Judge Jones ordered state lawmakers to draw up new plans that comply with the Voting Rights Act by December 8th. Joining me to discuss today's ruling is Ken Lawler, who is the chair of Fair Districts Georgia. Uh, prior to that, he was involved in the organization's research into the 20-year history of gerrymandering in Georgia, and he has advocated for reform with the state legislature and Georgia's congressional delegation. Ken, thanks for joining me. I appreciate that. Oh, you're very welcome. So your initial reaction to today's uh, ruling? Well, we think the court got it right. Um, we had expressed a view back in 2021 when these maps were first drawn that they disadvantaged uh, minority and black population in Georgia. They did not have enough districts for minorities and blacks. And uh, the court, after a very thorough review of listening to tons of experts and going through you know, experts on both sides and applying the law, has now agreed. So we applaud the court's decision. We think they got it right. So the judge also, by the way, seems to be optimistic, in fact, confident that uh, the General Assembly would be able to create new maps in time and Okay, so maybe that's the case, but do you, do you think they would draw fair maps by December 8th? Well, you know, if the legislature um, goes down a particular course, we think they can. I, you know, the idea here would be that we'd like to see the legislature focus the maps on fixing the problems, fixing the remedies, right? I should say applying the remedies as, as the judge is suggesting. The judge is pointing to specific areas of the state that need changing. Mm-hmm. If the maps are drawn kind of in a surgical fashion where those areas are focused on and not a lot of other changes get bundled in there for other reasons, uh, it will it will be a, a, a challenge because of the time frame. Um, but in theory, it can be done. Do you guys, and, and I know you, you try not to, to, to pivot one way or the other politically uh, on this uh, on this subject, but is is there a case to be made that conservatives can get behind for fair maps? Well, let, let's talk about two forms of, of fairness, right? One form of fairness is representation for minorities, right. and that's what this that's what this case is all about, right? Sure. Uh, at, at the end of the day, um, you have to comply with the law, right? The Voting Rights Act is a law reaffirmed by the Supreme Court this year. You have to comply with that law, right? Um, the other issue then is partisan gerrymandering, which unfortunately is legal in mm-hmm. Georgia, mm-hmm. right? Illegal in much of the country. Now, uh, we think both parties have a stake in having a fair process because at the end of the day, nobody knows by 2030 who's going to be drawing these maps. Mm-hmm. Could be progressives, could be conservatives. You really don't know. It depends on how elections work out between now and then, right? So we believe that both political parties have a stake in creating a process that could make the process fair to both sides by that time, by enacting laws, by putting standards into the law for drawing maps fairly. Uh, and we think that um, it would behoove them both to do that because nobody knows who has the power 10 years from now, right? Right. Uh, and, and we've seen since 2000, both parties 
have disadvantaged the other. The two thousand Democrats did it in two thousand with a very bad gerrymander thrown up at the Supreme Court. Republicans have been in charge since then. They've done it. This has to stop. The public wants this fixed. Let's be clear, right? right? The public wants this fixed. We have polling data that shows that. And there's no reason that a fair process cannot be enacted into law uh, by then uh, that would allow both parties to get behind a process that, that works. Fair enough. But polling shows a lot of things that American people want that politicians don't bring to them. And because, I guess, because of gerrymandering in, in specific at the House level, folks are protected uh, against blowback from uh, disavowing those polling numbers. So I, I like what you have to say about, well, you know, in the future, the shoe could be on the other foot. But that does not seem to sway Republicans in states that they cling to a slim control of. Well, curiously enough, going back in the early 2000s, right, um, there, there was a uh, – after that bad gerrymander that was thrown up the Supreme Court in 2004 mm. – Republicans actually introduced into the state legislature a proposal to make this process fair. Mm -hmm. Since then, Democrats have introduced that proposal. Guess what? It never goes anywhere because <laughs> the party in power does not want to give up that power. We right. get that, right? right. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, it, it's a it's a question I think of. Um, the polling says you should do the right thing, but political power says you have to kind of you know hedge your bets here, and so. It's a question of, you know, when do we reach that tipping point where the control of the state government is maybe divided in some way? Mm -hmm. One chamber flips, a governor changes, whatever. Then I think there's an incentive for both parties to talk turkey. We that, are. That, that, that's how we think it. That's how we think it. That, that's how we think it might happen. We'll see. We are with Ken Lawler, who is the chairman of the Fair Districts Georgia organization. We will share their link at ronshowetl.com in today's show notes. So take me back to when the Supreme Court decided to punt on gerrymandering, and then let's fast forward a little bit to when they actually decided to protect sections of the Voting Rights Act that are actually in play now to alter maps in states like uh, potentially Louisiana, uh, Alabama we know of, now Georgia, potentially South Carolina. Uh, can you explain how, how the Supreme Court decided to, to whiff on the one case, but also at the same time now act on the Voting Rights Act? Does, it, does, it, does that surprise you in any way? Uh, it does. It does, actually. Um, Supreme Court has been the, – the, the case where the Supreme Court stopped considering gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering, was in 2019. Right. A case out of North Carolina called Rucho v. Common Cause. And John Roberts this, uh, wrote the opinion and said the court should stay out of political issues. That was kind of his his mantra, right? Mm -hmm. Court should stay out of this what's called the political thicket. That's a matter that should be judged by uh, by your legislature passing laws. We should steer clear of that. That was a big change because prior to that time, the Supreme Court had taken on partisan gerrymandering cases, including a couple from Georgia, right? Mm. So Roberts said the court should stay out of that game, right? This case, uh, and, 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 and of course, you, you, you recall that in 2013, there was a case where they, ve they weakened the Voting Rights Act, the right. Shelby case, where they said you no longer have this preclearance game to go, that you have to go through. And this redistricting cycle in 2021 was the first one where Georgia went through redistricting without federal supervision, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so when, this, when these cases were filed in 2013, in, in in 2021 and 2022, Alabama, Georgia, um, we were concerned that the court would look at Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and say, next, 
You know, this is not necessary. <laughs> and the Alabama argument was, this is not necessary anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, the court surprised us and said, yes, it is. They basically said, we have a law that's still valid. We have Supreme Court presidents going back, you know, 30-some years. Those are still valid. You keep doing the right thing here, right, in, in, in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. So I would say we were, uh, I would say, pleasantly surprised with the ruling in June in the Alabama case, which is then opened the, opened the gates for these Georgia cases to proceed. It's interesting to watch uh, how the Supreme Court now holds on to uh, historical precedents at its level when it ignored historical precedents with Dobbs. But that's, I guess, another uh, topic for another conversation. Uh, Nonetheless, it looks like in Georgia, we're going to get a different look at maps. Now, we've seen where some, like in Alabama, the legislature decided to do nothing. Uh, Is there the potential that Georgia may do the same? I'm not going to speculate as to what the the, the, the state's reaction will be, whether they could appeal mm-hmm. or decide to punt. Um, I, what I would say is this. I think the Alabama case, the the federal courts have looked at that. Have been, that's been in and out of court, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I think the court has laid down a pathway that says we're not going to accept a lot of legal maneuvering that tries to work around the decision or thwart the decision. So I think the pathway for Georgia to... Um, maneuver has been narrowed. There may be a valid reason that Georgia would like to appeal this case, mm-hmm. and they're welcome to do that. I would just say that the court is going to take a very narrow and, and specific view of any kind of an appeal to say, is there something new here? Because the Alabama case, it, it, the court pretty much said, look, we've ruled on this. Supreme Court said, we've ruled on this. The Voting Rights Act must be upheld, make a new map. And now the court has ordered that map or has written, drawn that map for the state. So um, I, 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 I have no idea how Georgia will react. I cross my fingers and say that the legislature will realize and the governor will realize that this is the right thing to do. And they go about doing this again in a rather surgical fashion. We'd like them to focus the map drawing mm-hmm. on where the issues are and not include any changes that aren't relevant to that issue. Um, that might be there to gain political advantage for other reasons, right? Right. This should be a very surgical exercise to fix the problems, and and it'd be easier to draw the map if you limit it to those areas of the state that are focused uh, on these issues. That would be our hope. And you don't want to get the email from uh, the Supreme Court that says, per our last email, dot, 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 (laughs) you know, at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's, all right that's right that's right that's right ken lawler chair of fair districts georgia thank you so much for joining us on the ron show today i appreciate it you are very welcome thanks for calling me up incidentally i, I should point out by the way that it was uh, chief justice john roberts who hardcore conservatives uh absolutely loathe because they just cannot count on him in lockstep and also justice give me a beer brett kavanaugh were the two swing votes in the Alabama case that, uh, as Ken pointed out, opened up the floodgates. It also brings to mind that while we can bemoan the fact that there is a 6-3 majority conservative uh, Supreme Court bench in a country that is, by a razor-thin margin, majority moderate liberal, that we've seen the trajectory of justices nominated from the right to veer more to the center. In fact, in Justice Kennedy's uh, case, veering slightly left of center while in court. We see that trajectory with uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, as well. 
Even the loathed Antonin Scalia took a dip slightly so, closer to the center before his passing. Believe it or not, I was sitting here looking at a uh, article written by uh, the folks at 538.com. I don't want to say how old this is. Um, okay, this was back in 2014, 2015. Even Clarence, well, no, you know what? When Clarence started <laughs> his term on the bench, he was slightly more liberal than he is now, although he hit a bit of a bell curve of conservatism before slightly moderating a little, I mean, just ever so slightly. But as we know, you throw a little bit of money at Clarence and he'll get right back on track with whatever his wealthy handlers insist. Buy mama's house, fix it up, let mama live in it. He's good to go. Oh, no, wait. You also need to give him a quarter million dollar RV and some fancy vacations would be nice too. I don't suppose I need to mention, by the way, that Clarence Thomas was one of the four dissenting opinions in the Alabama voting rights case, though, right? He, an African-American man born and raised in the South and yet somehow believes that there is no bias whatsoever in the conservative-controlled South anymore because look at him. Look at Tim Scott. But I digress. A great day for voting rights in the state of Georgia. More Ron Show after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for Thursday. And with everything else going on, this one kind of flies under the radar, although it's an important point that needs to be made at the macro level when it comes to U.S. politics. University of Michigan economics professor Justin Walfers uh, began this tweet thread that uh, I want to share with you. Blockbuster GDP report shows real GDP grew at an annual rate of 4.9% in the third quarter, blowing even optimistic expectations out of the water. He says the economy is going gangbusters and it's time for the doomers to apologize for being consistently wrong for two years. When the recessionistas, I love that term, were wrong in late 2021, they said, it'll be 2022. And the economy kept growing. So they said, it'll be early 2023, only to see unemployment hit 50-year lows with inflation falling. So we were promised late 2023, and output is growing at nearly 5%. He continues, a thought. We see a lot of inks build about surveys with 2 to 3% response rates in which folks say they're unhappy about the economy. But focus on actual consumer spending, on what we're all doing, rather than what some folks are saying, and you'll get a much more upbeat story. He continues, let me put the huge GDP number in more human terms. For all the fancy acronyms, Real GDP per capita simply measures average income adjusted for inflation. Average income is growing strongly, and its recovery is strikingly more robust than the recovery from past downturns. He continues, if you had fallen asleep in January 2020 and slept through the pandemic and you woke up this morning, you would ask the first person you saw what good news you had missed because the economy today looks stronger than you had anticipated before nodding off. Inflation is now officially 2% something percent, he says, which puts us within spitting distance of the Fed's target. The Fed's preferred measure, the PCE deflator, no idea what that means, rose at an annual rate of 2.5% in the third quarter. The core PCE deflator rose at an annual rate of 2.4%, down from 3.7% in the second quarter. And if you're seeing higher inflation rates in the press, that's because their norm is to report inflation over the past year. This is a defensible norm. I pointed that out too, by the way. This is a defensible norm, but it includes a lot of stale info from nearly a year ago, and so it can be quite misleading around turning points. 
By the way, I did reach out to Professor Wolfers to see if he might join me on the show today, and he is the one person I couldn't get a hold of, but um, he's a professor, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute and the Peterson Institute as well, and he also wrote an introduction to economics textbook. Hmm. In uh, wonky terms, he's kind of a big deal, so I did try to get him on, but in fact, the reason I wanted to have him on was really just to pose this one question. All these numbers look fantastic. And I kind of believe that the American people, whether they want to admit it or not, are actually optimistic about the future of the economy as well. I mean, it's easy. We can all complain about grocery prices. And it's not invalid that grocery prices have gone up, that we've all felt the pinch of inflation over the last few years. But at the same time, if Americans didn't feel so optimistic about the current and future economy, then they wouldn't be resorting to maintaining the lifestyle to which we are accustomed to while also putting any excess expenses on the credit card. We're not exactly pulling back, which would cause a recession. We're saying we've got the optimism that we can get around to dealing with what we're putting on the credit card in the near-term future anyway. My question to the professor would have been, so how do democratic pundits and politicians then convince the American public what the American public already feels. That's the conundrum. All right, last thing before we go, in the House of Representatives, which now has a speaker, we have a censure off going on. First, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mr. Speaker, pursuant to Clause 2A1 of Rule 9, I seek recognition to give notice of my intent to raise a question of the privileges of the House. The form of the resolution is as follows. A resolution censuring Representative Rashida Tlaib for anti-Semitic activity, sympathizing with terrorist organizations, and leading an insurrection at the United States Capitol complex. Whereas in May 2019, Rashida Tlaib said that she celebrated the Holocaust and felt a calming feeling when thinking about the genocide of millions of Jews. Whereas in 2020, Rashida Tlaib retweeted an illustration with the caption, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, Representative Becca Ballant has now entered the chat. Censuring Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Whereas Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene has repeatedly fanned the flames of racism, anti-Semitism, hate speech against the LGBTQ community, Islamophobia, Asian hate, xenophobia, and other forms of hatred, whereas Marjorie Taylor Greene has repeatedly debased the memories of thousands of victims of the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, mm -hmm. by perpetuating conspiracy theories to shift blame and responsibility for mass murder, mm -hmm. whereas Marjorie Taylor Greene has repeatedly assaulted the foundation of our democracy by perpetuating conspiracy theories related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol, yep. which sought to halt the peaceful transfer of power. Mm -hmm. Whereas Marjorie Taylor Greene has repeatedly called for violence against elected officials and their families. Yep. Whereas Marjorie Taylor Greene has repeatedly espoused anti-Semitic rhetoric and conspiracy theories, including through inflammatory 
evocations of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Whereas on May 20th, 2021, Marjorie Taylor Greene said that the mask mandate in the House of Representatives was akin to Jews being put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. <laughs> Whereas on May 25th, 2021, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted, quote, vaccinated employees get a vaccination logo just like the Nazis forced Jewish people wow. to wear a gold star. Mm -hmm. Whereas on February 26th, 2022, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared at a white nationalist event that was condemned by the Republican Jewish Coalition as, quote, appalling and outrageous that a member of Congress would share a platform uh -huh. with an individual who has actively spread anti-Semitic bile, mocked the Holocaust, and promoted dangerous anti-Israel conspiracy theories. Anyway, you get the idea. Nice try, Marge. That's going to do it for The Run Show for today. I want to thank my guest, Ken Lawler from Fair Districts, Georgia. Also, Lee Richardson, counselor and founder of the Brain Institute in Dallas. Show notes and more at ronshowatl.com. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, and then afterwards, wherever you podcast. Have a good one.